Fourth Corinthians one six one through eight lawsuits against believers. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incom incompet incompetent to try tribal cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than ma matters penetrate pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can't it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother? And that before unbelievers do have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why, rather, why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defrauded, even your own brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear God, thank you for this day. We love you. You are in our hearts. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. Thanks, Sandels. Let's see. Can you guys hear me? Great. Awesome. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Mercy House. My name is Jake Blackwood, and I have the privilege of preaching on Family Worship Sunday. Uh, and we have recently started doing a bit of a children's lesson on these Sundays. So if I could get all the children uh, to come up here and form a little semicircle right here. Parents are welcome to come up, too, if your kids feel more comfortable having a chaperone. Come on up. A little nervous right now. <laughs> How you guys doing? Good. Good. All right. Well, I got a question to start off uh, for you guys right now. So, who here has a brother or a sister? Everybody. Everybody's got a brother or sister here. Great. I don't have to say friend now. So, everybody's got a brother or sister. What do you? What kinds of things do you guys typically disagree over? Do you guys ever have like disagreements or anything? Fight about anything? Yeah. What? Oh, so who's supposed to sleep in whose bed? Yeah, so you kind of like disagree over whose turn it is in which place, huh? Yeah. Hmm. Anything else? What other things do you guys disagree about? Huh? You can raise your hand. No. <laughs> no? No disagreements? Wow, what a peaceable group of people. I mean, like, do you guys ever, do you guys ever like, Fight over, like, toys, maybe? Is that something? All right, yeah, toys, for sure. That's, like, sharing toys, that's a big one. Like, okay, so, so if you do fight over toys, like, what do you guys do when that happens? You just stop playing with it? And do something else? All right, cool. 
Okay, all right, so you're pretty good at, like, you know, resolving the conflict yourself. That's a, getting ahead of things here, yeah? You just forget about it, yeah. That's good, all right. What else? What other, what other kinds of things might you do? You guys ever, like, go to mom or, mom or dad and ask them for help? Sometimes? Yeah, sometimes you go to mom or dad. Sometimes. Not everybody, but some people do. Okay. All right. So you might go to mom or dad, but you guys, like, ever, like, call the cops? No. <laughs> of course not, right? You know, like... Do you ever, like, go to the court and take them to a judge or anything like that? Ah, oh, that'd be silly, right? You wouldn't do that, right? So, yeah, you might go, um, so it might be better to talk to mom or dad about that, right, potentially. Or maybe even better, like we were talking about, figure it out for yourselves. That's a pretty, pretty good way of dealing with things, right? It's best to talk to your brother or your sister or maybe your friend to tell them how you feel. Maybe that's a better way of fixing the problem than running to your parents all the time, or certainly, like, the court, right, you know? Now, if your brother or sister, like, hits you on the head with a baseball bat, like, you got my permission, I think you can go talk to your mom or dad about that, you know, at the very least for, like, medical attention. But, you know, I think there's a sense in which some things we need the authority of our parents. More on that in the big kids sermon later. Uh, but. I think for small things, you guys should try to maybe figure it out yourselves sometimes. This is something we try and teach our kids. Like, maybe try and work it out a little bit yourselves first, right? That's good practice uh, for later on in life. Well, in the Bible, uh, we read about a, a time when the Apostle, Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, the passage that you just read, where he's writing to a city in Corinth. That's, that's a city in Greece, by the way. Uh, where they had all kinds of arguments. They had all kinds of problems. They were fighting over things, just like you guys fight over toys, maybe, right? And what do you think they were doing? Do you think they were trying to figure it out for themselves? No, what do you think they were doing? Yeah, right, try to like, go to court to try and send somebody to jail, maybe, or something like that. Yeah, they were going to court, which is, as we just talked about, it's kind of silly to go to court or call the police over something like that. And this wasn't for, like, big issues, but for, like, little disagreements, right? Little small things, right? It's, like, kind of like going to the police, and, you know, if you, if you aren't sharing toys, right? That'd be kind of silly. Well, what do you think Paul told them? Yeah. That's, that's the sermon, basically. Yeah, yeah, good job. Yeah, why, do you have, why can't you figure this out for yourselves, right? Treat each other with love and respect, not saying, I have to have it my own way, right? Thinking of each other first. It's better for us as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we are. We're brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, right? As part of this church, when we make each other mad or sad, right, that we should talk about it together. We should try and work it out. You guys know who the best example of this was? What do you think the best example of this was? Oh, she had a thought. Maybe. No? Come on. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the same answer every time, right? It's Jesus, right? That's right, Jesus. God has every right, by the way, to take us to court, right? God had that right to punish us for sin, but he loved us so much that he did what? He sent Jesus. And even though Jesus was God, he became like us. He became a brother. Did you know that? That if you trust in Jesus, that Jesus calls you brother or sister? Did you guys know that? He came to us as a brother. He taught us how to live. 
And he didn't just tell us, don't do bad things, but he died to wash away all of the bad things that we've done and to make us clean. He also sends us his helper, the Holy Spirit, too. And the Holy Spirit helps us to do the right thing, okay? And he did this, all of this, so he could call you brother and sister and call you friend. So I want you to do two things for me. I want you to know something, and I want you to do something. So the first thing I want you to know is that God loved us so much that he came here to earth to be with us and to give everything for us. And the second thing I want you to do is try to treat each other in the same way, okay? Love your brother, your sister, your friend, your mom, and your dad, and go to them when you have disagreements and talk it out, okay? So I'm going to pray real quick, and then you guys can go back to your seats, all right? Dear God, we pray that these children would know and feel the love of Christ in their lives, that he died for their sins, that he died for the church. Let them know that they can be reconciled to you by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and raised again to new life and the resurrection to come. Draw them to you through your spirit, O God. Build in them a faith that will stand the test of time. Let them then treat each other with love and care, reconciling with one another and then thinking of each other first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks, guys. You guys can head back to your seats. Okay, well, <laughs> fantastic. Not expecting that, for sure. Um, well, today's text has a bit to unpack. Uh, it's Family Sunday, so I've got about 20 minutes here. Uh, to, and so I've got to edit the usual nuance that I like to throw in uh, to my sermons. Uh, I want to say up front that if you ever have questions uh, about a sermon or thoughts that you want to bring to either me or one of the elders or whoever's preaching, please feel free to come talk to me after service. Um, also, I can, I can also encourage you to uh, use our emails. We have elders at mercyhouse365.org. You can always send me an email if you have questions. I also have an email that's jake at mercyhouse365.org. Uh, so, um, and I would also just encourage you to discuss this text among yourselves this week, whether that's in family group or when you meet with each other for coffee um, or when you meet with each other for lunch. Whatever you find lacking in my exposition this morning, I would encourage you uh, to supplement it with your own discussions and follow-up questions. That said, I do want to pro provide some context for uh, this set of verses here. You know, first, we know from this sermon series that we've been working through that uh, Paul is addressing a divided church in Corinth along factional lines that are split by teacher preference and maybe some philosophical differences. We know that the church exists in this debaucherous city known for its excess and indulgence in all kinds of sin. And we know that this lack of restraint 
uh, that's present in the culture has taken hold in the church. And what's more, it's been like supercharged by this, uh, this distorted vision of grace that's kind of uh, given like, like oxygen to a fire, uh, has, has made it so to a, it's, it's at a point where the, there are relationships within the church that even the pagans are like, that's not good, right? As we read in chapter 5 last week. And as a means of resolving some of these issues, uh, Paul has directed the church to take action, right? To step up and actually uh, uh, identify this flagrant sin and remove the person from the church. But the reason he's asking them to do this is not because Corinthians were somehow opposed to judgment in any form. Quite the contrary, Greek culture was extremely litigious. They loved to go to court, in fact, it was almost like a sporting event to them. There was like a spectacle to the thing, right? And part of the reason uh, that they were going to the court was that they valued their rights so highly. The idea of rights being violated was a great offense, and the court was a place to both adjudicate whether those rights were being violated, but also like, you know, have a little bit of entertainment too. And so we see this obsession with rights uh, is sort of a seed of all kinds of flagrant sin within the church, right? This idea of the grace of God has been perverted into a kind of right to do whatever I want. And also, that's, so that's stifled the ability of the church to, to pass judgment so that they don't trample on perceived rights. But at the same time, there's this factionalism that's going on, Right? And there's this, there's this cultural uh, propensity to take each other to court. And so we read in verse 1 of our text uh, the following, that when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So while rampant disregard for morality is going on unchecked, church members are picking fights with each other and then staging them for all to see. These disputes are arising within the church, perhaps related to the factions that we've been talking about, and the predisposition that the Corinthians have for essentially suing each other over these disputes is starting to air grievances that exist within the church. And part of the problem here is that they're placing individual rights against their responsibilities that they have uh, to their family members in the church. And if you can't tell by now, uh, Paul's pretty exasperated with them. And so his response is that this is not good, right? In verses 2 through 8, he basically walks through four points that I want to highlight here today. I'm going to give them to you real quick. All right, so the first is that this, these activities are not reflective of an eternal reality. So they're not reflective of an eternal reality. Second, it passes off the moral responsibility of those in the church onto those outside of the church. So it's passing off responsibility. It's a dereliction of duty. Third, it reflects poorly on the church before unbelievers. It's a bad rep. And fourth, uh, and I think this is really the center of the issue here, it reflects a kind of self-centeredness, a self-centered way of thinking among the Corinthians. And so, the first point we see here is that it's reflective of this, like, cosmic reality, okay, that that shows up in verses 2 through 3. So, we read in verses 2 through 3, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 
How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Paul is saying here, do you guys get what's going to happen? Like, and he kind of gives it, he's like, so he, you must not, so here's the deal. And he kind of gives this like drive-by summary of, of some key points about the future kingdom here. Right? It's, it's sort of a, an apocalyptic vision in some ways. He's referencing Daniel 7, which is apocalyptic literature, where he's talking about the future fulfillment of the kingdom of the Lord and the saints who are going to, going to join in possessing it. For example, we read in Daniel 7, verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Likewise, we see in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he's talking about the disciples there who are going to join with him in the new heaven and new earth, in the kingdom of God, in ruling. Likewise, Revelation has similar scenes. So overall, this picture that we're getting of the kingdom of God being established is, is an important aspect of the gospel. Sometimes in, the, in our evangelical circles, we kind of forget this. Even in the little kids lesson I did just now, we, we kind of focus on the individual nature of salvation. But we kind of forget that the message is that God is bringing and will bring all things under his dominion. He's establishing his kingdom. He's ushering in the restoration of all things, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness reigns. And what Paul's saying here is that we get to take part in that. We're co-heirs, as we read in Romans 8, 17, with Jesus. As we are under the good king's dominion, we're also given dominion. And Paul is sort of giving this sort of shock and awe treatment of this topic. He gives them this kind of like flash of this incredible glory that that's going to entail. And he's saying that the church should be a foreshadow of that. He's saying, you're just meant to try, try trivial things, to judge trivial things. You're going to judge the whole world. How can you judge the world if you can't handle petty disputes? You know you're going to judge angels, right? That's what he says. No explanation about what that means, right? I, I don't know what that means, to be on, quite honest, but it sounds like a big deal, right? And that this is the internal reality then it should be reflected in how we conduct ourselves as a church. We should use the God-given abilities within our congregation to settle disputes. It's our responsibility. In verses 4 through 5, we read, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? I don't think we should understate the harshness of Paul's words here. He's saying shame on you, right? And this shame-honor kind of culture that he exists in, this would have been a heavy sentence to utter. It would have hurt. His question here, is there no one among you, that's, not, that's, a, that's a rhetorical question, right? He's not questioning their ability to judge. He's already said they're going to judge angels, right? So the answer is clearly, yes, there are people among you, and the fact that it isn't happen, happening is because they're not taking responsibility. It's a dereliction of duty, and Paul says they should be ashamed. 
By the way, contrast this in, in, in with uh, chapter 4 in verse 14 from a couple weeks ago, where he calls himself and fellow Christians the scum of the earth. And in that case, he says, it's not to their shame. To suffer indignity for the sake of the kingdom is an honor. To refuse to use your gifts and wisdom to serve the church, that's a shame. That's how Paul views it. And so from this sort of cosmic reality of the kingdom to come and the responsibilities that, um, uh, that church members have to judge in these matters, we move to the practical uh, aspect of this, which is that Paul says in verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? He's questioning this idea that not only is this like reversing the order of the church judging the world, right, and now the world is judging the church, but he's also suggesting that it reflects poorly on the church to do this before unbelievers. And so he ultimately diagnoses the Corinthians with their focus on their own rights with, with a kind of self-centeredness and even a greediness. So we read in verses 7 through 8, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? So I think on one hand, we can see a suggestion here, right, that the lawsuits are meant to exact something from each other, right? There's a kind of greediness here, and that, that, that shows up in verses 9 and 10, which we'll cover next week, where Paul kind of calls out greed and pilfering. And that's not a coincidence here, because part, that seems to be part of what's going on in these verses that we're reading now. However, I think Paul is getting at something deeper, He's calling them to a completely new perspective, in opposition to this assertion of rights and insisting on what is owed to us, Paul suggests that we should rather lose than cause further strife in these matters. It places the desire for unity and fellowship above what we think we deserve, even in cases where it might be justified. This is a stunning call, and it's one that, fought, that really flies in the face of much of what Greek culture valued, and frankly, much of what we value today, right? To exercise our rights, that's paramount in our culture. But Paul is indicating something very different here. It's not, he's not denying the existence of rights, I don't, at least I don't think that's what he's doing here, but the suggestion is that our orientation should be toward promoting unity rather than asserting our personal rights, that we should, at least in some instances, choose not to exercise those rights or assert our desires or even seek restitution, he suggests, if it will cause greater harm for the church body. So there's a responsibility here that balances and maybe even in some cases supersedes rights. I think we do this all the time, you know, when we think about our rights, say, to speech. No one says everything that pops into their head. Thank God, right? You know, even though you may have a right to, right? Why? Because we, I think we recognize some kind of responsibility to steward that speech well, especially within the church. And also because we don't want to get punched, right? I mean, I think those two things are related, right? I want, and I, I do want to talk a little bit here. I am going to try and add some nuance here, uh, what this does not mean. But let's not miss the radical sacrificial call here. In such cases that he's talking about, 
It's better to be wronged by a fellow church member and to receive no restitution than to widen the divisions of the church and to strip them bare before the unbelieving world. So Paul is saying, work it out yourselves, just like we talked about with the kids. But just like with the kids where I said, if your brother hits you on the head with a baseball bat, like, come talk to me or talk to your parents, right? I think the same kinds of qualifications could be made with this text. Suffice it to say that this text has been used to justify and sweep under the rug all kinds of bad behavior in the church. And I want to be clear that this text is primarily about minor disputes and not about criminal matters. In particular, when violence and abuse occur in the church, this passage is not an excuse to just deal with it internally or keep it from legal authorities, even when it concerns two members. Again, I think this is partly because Paul is referring to trivial matters or minor cases here where church resources and ability to do justice can reasonably be expected. But it's also because there is a God-given authority to the government to establish and keep laws, laws that keep the peace, that provide order and public safety and prevent grievous harm from occurring in society. And we should abide by those laws. And the government should dispense justice when those laws are not kept. And I think Paul affirms this in Romans 13. Lots of rabbit trails we could go down with that. But I'm going to stay on task for the moment. One other note I do want to make, though, is that our hope should be as a church, when there is conflict, is that we should seek justice and resolution between brothers and sisters within the church. Not to leave it unresolved. It isn't always, this isn't just to like grin and bear it, right? To always suffer in silence or ignore sin. Understanding the source of conflict, identifying sin and harm done, calling to repentance and restitution, and ultimately bringing about reconciliation, that's that's church stuff. That's bread and butter church stuff. Paul isn't saying we shouldn't seek justice, but that when possible, the church should step up to help resolve these conflicts. And yet Paul's clear. Our disposition should be biased towards caring for the good of the church above ourselves. I can't tell you how that looks in every situation. Sometimes you need to confront sin, and that might mean tension. Sometimes that means, though, being okay with feeling misunderstood or feeling like you didn't get the credit or that you really weren't treated all that well. And that can be really heavy. But this isn't just some abstract ideal he's talking about. It's based on a real flesh and blood example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Caring for the church. Bearing with a brother. Suffering wrong for the sake of a brother. Providing healing by being wounded. This, is the, this was the work of Jesus Christ on earth. He was the image of the invisible God. Yet he came to us. He got down on her level, God with us, Emmanuel, to live and breathe, to teach, suffer, and die so that we might live. Jesus Christ suffering wrong so that we might be reconciled and restored and that his kingdom would come. The Lord Jesus spoke on the night when he was betrayed. He took the bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. His suffering, his body broken, his blood spilled so that you might be able to experience fellowship with him and each other. Now, without the Spirit, we would have no hope to live like Paul is asking in verse 8. Seeking the good of others at our own expense as Jesus did, that's not possible. But through the Spirit, we can do all things. As we look forward to the kingdom when we will be restored under King Jesus, when we will rule under His rule, every wrong in this life will seem insignificant. So we endure and we bear with one another because we know that no fraud or scheme can cheat us out of our heavenly inheritance. As Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray to thank God for His mercy as we seek unity together. Dear Heavenly Father, You are the righteous judge. Jesus, You rule and reign, and Your rule and reign will never end, and we praise You. We confess our desire for our own way, our insistence on our own desires. I know I have felt that this week, and I repent of my selfishness. Thank you for your mercy on us, Father, in sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering the pain of the cross to die for us, though you did not deserve it, so that we might be re reconciled to you. We pray that your Spirit would enable us to bear with one another, that we would care for each other, that sin would not be excused, but in love we would trust that your work has been and will be fulfilled in each of our lives. We pray for unity in our church, and we pray that our family would grow as we teach and shepherd our children, and we pray you would be glorified in this church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.